0: Uh, Well, good morning everyone. I hope that uh, you've all had an enjoyable weekend and that you're excited to be in the presence of other Christians and that you're excited to collectively join in an effort to worship God. This morning we are continuing our study uh, looking at the story of the Bible. And essentially what this is, is what many of you know of it to be, is the five-part study that we've essentially broken down into a sermon format. And so really the purpose of the study is to uh, use it to evangelize or use it as a tool to share with other people to take the Bible and to put it in perspective and present it on a simple format for people to understand. And so really when we look at the study what we're trying to do is we're trying to draw a historical chronology of significant events that's happened in the Bible and we want to use those events to show how they directly relate to God's predestined divine purpose for man and show how all of these things even as far attenuated as they are how they ultimately relate To Jesus Christ and so really the purpose of the study is to use it as a tool to evangelize Um, what the study is not for the study is not for to sit down with people who want to challenge you on Darwinism Uh, the study is not designed to sit down with people who want to challenge you on carbon dating Uh, the study is not designed to sit down with people who want to challenge you on uh, many type of issues regarding the validity of the Bible But rather it's something that we can sit down with someone who has an interest in the Bible, who believes the Bible, that when we open the Bible and we read in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that we have an understanding that that's true. That's a baseline that we can agree upon. It's going to do us no good to take this study and to sit down with someone who's eager to challenge you on Gnosticism or the Apocrypha. It's someone who has a desire to ultimately learn the Scriptures, that believe that God created everything, and that's something that we can agree to, and that's a baseline that we can share. And so as we go throughout this study, it's a lot of information. But what, you, what we want to ultimately be able to do is that as we go through the age of the fathers and we open up the Bible and we read a few pages in and we read about a man named Noah who spared his family from a flood by being obedient to God's will, that it happened thousands and thousands of years ago that that story somehow relates to when we flip towards the end of the Bible and we read about a man named Jesus Christ who was the Son of God and who rescued us from our sins. That somehow those two th- events in time is as far and as attenuated as they are, that somehow they have a relationship. That somehow they're connected. That throughout the course of time and throughout the history of man, God had a divine purpose. And that purpose was He was going to send His Son. And so we've referenced... Uh, this image several times throughout our study. But just kind of briefly going through it, today we're still in the age of the fathers. And that's a period of time where God spoke to the patriarchs of families. That God spoke to men such as Abraham. That God would speak directly to people like Noah and Jonah and all of these type of people. And at this time there was no nationalized religion. That it was the beginning point from the creation to to when Moses would go up on Mount Sinai and he would receive the Ten Commandments and he would come down and that would start a new dispensation. A dispensation that some of us refer to as the Mosaical Dispensation or the Age of Moses. That when Moses came down that now Israel, they had been part of God's people but he was going to establish a law. And that law was not only the Ten Commandments but it was a law of 600 some odd laws, 613 odd laws that restricted their diets, that taught them how to worship, that instituted punishment that were harsh, and so it was an interesting time in which to live. And our Savior Jesus, that when he walked the earth, he actually lived during this time. He was living during the time of Moses. But he came during this time, but he also said that when he came, he didn't come to destroy the law of Moses. He, what did he say? He said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but I came to fulfill it. So what did he mean by that? We know that when he came to fulfill the law, he didn't sit down with his disciples and say, okay guys, thou shalt not kill what he told them was is that you shouldn't even get to the point in your heart that you would hate someone to the point of murdering them. That the law had a purpose, that the law was instituted to show the, 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 the perfection of God and who he was, and that Jesus came to change the hearts of men and to, to prepare them to see what an image of what God was like. And we know that, that Jesus was taken by, by accusations of the Jews and that he was turned over to the Roman government and that he was crucified and that he was nailed to that cross. And that he was buried and that he was resurrected. And that on the third day that he he was resurrected to be with God in heaven. And that Peter stood up in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 and he preached the first gospel sermon. These people were convicted in their hearts. They said, what shall we do? And Peter told them, he said, men and brethren, you need to repent. You need to be baptized for the remission of your sins. And it says that they did that and that they were added into the church. And so we start this new age, this dispensation of Christianity that you and I live in today, the Christian age. And so that just kind of gives us a rough timeline of what we're going through. But as we continue on this morning, we're still in this, this period from Genesis 1 to Exodus 20 that we refer to as the age of the fathers, when God had direct conversations or relationships with the patriarchs of families. And really the theme that we should be looking out for throughout this study is that he is on his way, that Jesus Christ is coming, that when we look at these events, there's parallel, there's foreshadowing, there's symbolism in these things to reveal to us um, the coming of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to start here at the age of the fathers, and we're going to pick up where Bruce left off, uh, where Noah, um, all the way into Exodus. And so uh, starting in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. It says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of his thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And In verse 6 it says that the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth and he was grieved in his heart. And the end of all flesh had come before me. This is God speaking here. The end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence through them and behold I will destroy them with the earth. And so I think many of us are familiar with the story of of Noah, how Noah built an ark. But we read here in this time that this is a period where God is simply frustrated with man. And so the question becomes is, well, why did God want to destroy the earth to begin with? And that answer is found in the first eight verses of Genesis chapter 6. It says that when God looked upon the world, God was disgusted with what he saw. God created the world, God created creation to be a glorification to him, that man would serve him, that man would, that, that, that his creation would bring him glory, but when God looked upon the earth he didn't see that. What God was saw was to much to his surprise a lot of evil. Not anyone, not anyone besides Noah and his family were were, were walking with God. And said that the, the earth was filled with violence, that it was a place full of, of murder, that it was a place full of barbarism, and God was basically done with it. But it says that in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Well, why did Noah find grace in the eyes of the Lord? Well, if we go down to verse 9, the verse right below that, it says that Noah walked with God. At a time in the world where the world was secular, at a time where people were continually evil, when God looked down upon them, he didn't see anybody, anybody besides Noah, who had a sincere heart. And it says that because Noah walked with God, that God found grace with him. And because Noah walked with God, he was close enough to hear God tell him, Noah, I'm going to destroy the world. I'm going to destroy the world. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. And you're going to make rooms in that ark and you're going to cover it on the inside and the outside with pitch. And so God gives him instruction of how he's to design and how he's to create this vessel that's going to spare him and his family. And he tells him that they're specifically going to make it out of gopher wood and that there's going to be rooms in it and that he's going to cover the outside with pitch. Now when we look at that word pitch there, pitch in that context is really used as basically a sealing agent that was going to seal the boat. So that was Noah constructed this vessel as he put the wood on the ship. He was going on the inside and on the outside. He was going to seal it with a pitch to to seal it, to protect it from the waves that would beat against it as the earth was covered with water. And what's interesting to me is when I look that word up in the Hebrew, that word tra- translates into atonement. And so um, Basically, the pitch was going to act as an atonement to spare Noah from the wrath of God on the ungodly of the world. And so what I think that we can see there is I think that we can see some symbolism and relationship to Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus Christ's blood seals us from the wrath of God against the ungodly, that it seals our redemption and atonement. And so uh, symbolism that we can draw out of the construction simply of the ark. And so it says here in Genesis chapter 6 verse 15 that God gives him the specific dimensions of which he is to design the ark. It says the length of the ark shall be 300 cubits and its width 50 cubits and that it should be 30 cubits high. And so if we were to define what a cubit is, it's essentially the length of your forearm uh, extended to your hand, roughly about 18 inches. And so just to uh, show uh, a model of that, it would be right there, 30 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Uh, To put that in uh, another context, it would roughly be the size of 522 boxcars, or sometimes you hear people relate to it as a, as a football field and a half. And so, this is a, a, a ginormous um, vessel that he's designing. And so, uh, a question that comes up, or, or it says that Noah did according to what God commanded him, so he did. And so, when God told him to build the ark, Noah specifically designed and created it uh, to the measurements that God gave him. And so the question becomes, would he be obeying God if he decided to use gopher wood instead? Uh, Me me and Jessica like uh, uh, an actor by the name of Nick Hofferman. And the reason that we like Nick Hofferman is because he is a uh, master uh, carpenter. And Jessica is really interested in doing a lot of woodworking. And sometimes we'll watch his shows. In fact, Jessica's ordered his book about how to design and create different tables and such forth. Uh, And he's very knowledgeable when it comes to uh, the different types of woods. And so the other day I was watching a show that he was on and he was asked, what's your favorite type of wood? And uh, he said, my favorite type of wood to work and create with is American white oak. And they said, well, why do you like American white oak? And he said, because it's it's durable, it's um, it's uh, it has beautiful grain patterns in it. It's a it's a overround solid, just a great wood to use. And um, uh, and so my question would be if if Noah was instructed to use gopher wood, and he himself thought, you know, I think I would use um, American oak instead, because I think that you know. This is going to be a ship that's going to be bombarded by the waves, and this is going to be a ship that's going to take a beating. Go for woods, a decent wood and all, but I think that we should probably go with a better quality wood, and you know, I'll take it upon myself to, and use to intensify the labor to go out and use American oak. The question becomes is would he be doing what God told him to do? And the answer to that is No. Well, what if he says, well, we're going to build it and use, make 250 cubits instead of 300 cubits in length, um, or we're we going to do 60 cubits in width instead of 50? The question again becomes is, would he be doing what God told him to do? And so um, even though he may reason in his mind of a reason why it might be better to design it a different type of way, it would still be outside of the directive that God would have gave him. And so he wouldn't be obeying God. And so we know that Noah did what the Lord commanded him to do, and that he was saved and his family was saved. And so the question becomes, Is well, what saved Noah? Grace saved Noah. In Genesis chapter um, 6 and verse, um, verse 8, it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so I looked up that word grace to see what it means. That word grace is translated favor. It's translated into acceptance. That when, when God looked upon Noah, that he had favor with Noah because he walked with God, that he had acceptance with God. And so there's an attribute of grace of God looking down upon Noah and extending that to him. And so grace saved Noah. But was that it? Also what saved Noah was faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, and verse 7, it says, By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household. And so because God had grace on Noah, because God extended that to him, Noah believed in God when God told him that he was going to destroy the world, and that produced a work in his life, or that produced acceptance or a firm conviction in his mind that God would do what he was going to say he was going to do. And so the faith of Noah saved Noah. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 through 9, it says, for, uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith. You know, when I picture Noah uh, uh, preparing this ark, I can only envision him going out day in and day out, chopping gopher wood down, going in and taking a, a hacksaw and just chopping wood. And in, if you look in Second Peter chapter 2, it says that, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, that I'm sure people encountered him, people who have never even seen rain in their life, and said, what is this man doing? He's a maniac. But when God told him that he was going to destroy the world, that he firmly believed it, even though he'd never seen a flood in his life, even though he'd never seen a drop of rain. And he was telling those people that it was going to rain. It was a four-word sermon, but it was a sermon that he gave them. It's going to rain. And the relationship there in Ephesians chapter 2 is that we're told that we're saved by grace and we've been saved through faith. And there's a number of people who will tell you in the relationship here and they're studying with you is why I'm saved by the grace of God. And that's a true statement. There's many people who tell you, well, I'm saved. I have faith because I believe in God. That's also a true statement that God extended grace to us through, through Jesus Christ. And Paul talks about that in Ephesians. And I don't know if you recall, but not so long ago, we, we study the book of Galatians. And in the book of Galatians, we, we address that topic of whether we're saved by grace or is it is a combination of being saved by grace and faith and obedience. But we see here that not only did grace and faith save Noah, but it, it was his obedience as well. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 11, it says, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not seen, moved with godly fear, and prepared an ark for the saving of his household. And so because of that grace and because of that faith, that produced a work in his life to being obedient to God that moved him to the action of preparing the ark. And so was that it? Was it just the fact that God extended grace to Noah? Was it just the fact that God extended, or that uh, Noah extended faith in response to that grace, and that Noah was obedient to what God told him to do? Well, we see in First Peter chapter 3, verse 20, it says that, For the divine longsuffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. And so through this scripture that we see it was not only grace, that it was not only faith, it was not only obedience, but that it was water. And so the water, I think here is a symbolism or a reference to baptism. And I know and I, I believe that, because if you look down in the next verse in verse 21 of First Peter, it says, "The like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of filth and the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection." of Jesus Christ. And so again, we can see symbolism and how it relates to the modern day man, the God extending grace, that man responding in that faith, in obedience, and that water is a part of that element of receiving salvation. And so the question becomes: is it true? Is it true that Noah was just saved by faith only? And I think that we've established that that's not not necessarily the case, that it required Noah to produce a work, that it required him to be obedient. We find in James chapter 2 and verse 17, thus also saith faith by itself if it does not have works, it's dead. And so Paul talks a lot in Romans and in Galatians about you're being saved by faith, you're being saved by faith, but James tells us that if your faith has no uh, fruit in it, then you can't even really say that you have faith. And so uh, faith and obedience is an important part of that as well. In Genesis, or excuse me, it says that Noah was saved by grace of faith when he through faith obeyed God and built that ark used to save him on the water from that was evil. And so uh, the flood came. God destroyed all the creation except for Noah and his family. And after the water uh, subsided, it says that uh, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now the whole earth had one language, in one speech, and so the earth's been destroyed. Noah and his family get off uh, the ark, and it's a time where basically God gives them the command. They're supposed to go replenish the earth, and they're supposed to go and fill the earth. But it says in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 4 that mankind said, "Let's build ourselves a city, a tower whose top is in the heavens, lest we be scattered abroad and over the face of the earth." And so instead of adhering to the command that God gave them after getting off the vessel, they decided we're going to stop migrating west and we're going to construct this tower that's going to eventually be a skyscraper and we're going to just stop right here. And I think that they were probably trying to do this to build a monument to themselves and to, to basically worship themselves. But God, uh, knowing their hearts, basically said, I'm going to basically confuse their language So it says, the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from where the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. And so uh, this is also known as the Tower of Babel. And Sometimes you hear the term babbling. It's a reference to this. And so when the Lord scattered them, the three sons of Noah, uh, Shem and Japheth and Ham, basically relocated in different parts of the world. And we see that Shem uh, migrated into Asia that Japheth migrated into Europe and that Ham migrated into um, Africa. And we know that obviously they were of one bloodline because they were the descendants of Adam and Eve. Then we get into, after segueing out of Genesis chapter 11, we get into chapter 12 and we talk a little bit about the promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house into a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we see here in Genesis chapter 1 that Abraham is basically a descendant of Shem, one of the uh, uh, sons of Noah, that he is promised by God three different promises he's promised land he's promised that through his um, lineage there would be a great nation from him and that all the families of the earth would be blessed and so well what did that translate to or what did that mean the land that uh, was promised to him would be the land of Canaan when God told Abraham to get up and to go he was taking him to the land of Canaan and that through his lineage would come the nation of Israel And that the worldwide blessing would be Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ was the descendant from Abraham through David and the lineage of that family. And we see that confirmed uh, in Galatians chapter 3 where it talks about now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds and as many as but one and to your seed. And so Jesus Christ was from the same bloodline as Abraham. And because Abraham was a man of faith, that God found favor with him, that that Jesus Christ would come through, um, would come through his lineage, and so what was some of that lineage? Um, I think I'm off of my slide. So when Abraham told, when God told Abraham to leave and to go to the land of Canaan, Abraham took his nephew Lot with him. And the next slide we see is a journey or a route that they took. That it's believed that they were somewhere around the Tigris and Euphrates River, that they made this travel, and that they were ultimately going to reside in Canaan. But we know as the story goes that they started bickering amongst themselves, that they started fighting because the herdsmen of Abraham and of Lot started saying, our animals are getting too big, Uh, we're starting to fight over, we don't have enough food. And so, basically, Abraham, and Lot make the decision that they're going to part ways, and so when they part ways, Abraham gives him the the opportunity of where to go. and It says that Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain that pitched his tent, even as far as Sodom, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord and then it says that that God basically came to Lot and told him i 'm fixing to blow this place to smithereens i 'm tired of the wickedness there." And so he told Lot and his family to get out and to escape. And when they were to escape, they weren't supposed to look back. But Lot's wife looked back, and in doing so, she became a pillar of salt. And so Abraham basically uh, establishes that he has a son named Isaac, and that through Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and that through Jacob would be born the nation of Israel that Jacob had 12 sons and that those 12 sons would be the 12 tribes of Israel. And we read a story about Jacob, how uh, Jacob was fleeing for his life and he was about to die in the desert and that an angel of the Lord sent to Jacob and that he wrestles with Jacob in this desert and basically takes his hip out of socket and that the meaning of the word Jacob to to some people is a struggle with God and that's kind of a representation of, of Israel and their struggle with their relationship with God and of the of the twelve tribes, we see that uh, these were the uh, the twelve tribes that uh, came from Jacob. And so uh, we see that Jacob is living with his family uh, in this land, but a severe famine uh, hits the land. And so Jacob decides he'll take his family and that they will migrate out of Canaan, and they end up into Egypt. And while they're in Egypt, Basically, Jacob's son Joseph finds favor with Pharaoh and becomes basically his second-in-command. And while he's the second-in-command there, over a span of about 430 years, the people of Israel began to grow in Egypt, and they were increasing in number. And Pharaoh became exceedingly concerned with the fact that the Israelites were becoming so big. And so what he decided to do was to b- enslave them. And so this is where we find that this is how Israel ends up in Egypt to begin with. And we see that they're held captive uh, by the Egyptians. But there will be a man named Moses because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart and because of a decree that was put down that they were supposed to kill the, uh, the firstborn of all the Israelite babies. Moses' mother put him in a basket and put him in the river and tried to spare his life by floating him down the river. And it says here that Pharaoh's, uh, that one of Pharaoh's um, uh, maids found him and basically took him in, and he became a prince of Egypt. And so even though he was of Hebrew descent, um, he became a prince of Egypt. And one day uh, uh, he saw uh, a, uh, an Egyptian beating uh, a Hebrew. And out of anger and out of fury, he took that individual and he uh, killed that individual. And so the following day, uh, Moses saw uh, two Hebrews fighting. And Moses went to them and said, you know, why are you fighting against each other? And they basically said, well, what's it to you? Why are you aren't you the person who killed an Egyptian? And because of this, um, he was extremely afraid. And he uh, left and he fled from the face of Pharaoh because he basically um, had a death warrant out for him. And so he went into this land and basically took a wife and had a father-in-law and lived in this uh, land uh, until one day uh, God came to him in the form of a burning bush. And God told him that uh, I want you to go back into Egypt and I want you to tell Pharaoh a few things. I want you to basically go and to bring my people out of Egyptian slavery. And Moses refuted with him and Moses told him that I'm not a go-to-orator and I don't think that I can do it. But basically God told him, uh, you're going to do it. And so he did. And so he goes in front of Pharaoh and he demands that Pharaoh release the children of Israel from captivity. Pharaoh, because of the hardness of his heart, refuses to do it. And so God uses Moses to institute essentially um, some plagues that come upon Egypt to the point that Pharaoh finally releases them. And so while they're released, Pharaoh changes his mind and decides to order his army to go and to recapture the Israelites. And then they come to the Red Sea and they believe that they're trapped. But Moses said, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see no more. And out of a great divine um, uh, uh, intervention by God, he basically parts the Red Sea And allows them to cross. And then as we know that the account goes that the Egyptians were swallowed up in the ocean. And so they're then left to to wander in the wilderness until the point that Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. And then on Mount Sinai he receives the Ten Commandments. And that will start the new dispensation or the mosaical dispensation uh, that we'll get into next. Um, it's a lot of information I know I just uh, threw at you, but we discovered about 1,500 years of history in about 25 minutes. Um, I appreciate your attention. I uh, I hope that throughout this study, even though it's heavy in information, that we see the theme that Jesus Christ has as a has a part in each one of these significant events and so uh, the parallelisms that we see of of Israel being in Egyptian slavery is you and I as Christians being in slavery to our sin and and God rescuing us and you'll find these themes throughout our study I appreciate your attention at this time we'll stand and sing a song selected